This time, uh, David Green is going to read God's word for us. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Ephesians 4, through 32. This can be found on page 1821 in your pew Bibles. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgive each other, just as in Christ forgave you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, we've been going through a series on the Christian virtues, and we've been following uh, those virtues as they come to us, mostly in Colossians chapter 3. But as uh, David read from Ephesians 4 this morning, I hope you heard a lot of those same virtues mentioned. And uh, one that we'll be looking at today, um, I've called truthfulness, but it has a lot to do with how we handle the words that we speak. Next week, uh, we're going to look at the topic of love, um, which Paul says in Colossians 3, above all, put on love. And then we'll look at one more on Thanksgiving Day, obviously the virtue of gratitude. But again, this morning we'll be looking at, um, at uh, truthfulness. So see if you can complete this sentence with me. I meant what I said, and I said what I meant. An elephant's faithful 100%. Not many people knew that here. <clears throat> Are you serious? You never read Dr. Seuss? Horton is one of the most famous figures in children's literature, and he's famous for his faithfulness, right? He's faithful to his word. Well, if you didn't know that one, you're probably not going to know the next one. But Dr. Seuss actually wrote another story, and it was called The Big Brag. The Big Brag. And in it, a rabbit and a bear are bragging to each other about how they're, most, uh, they're the most incredible animals in the animal kingdom because of their special capabilities. The rabbit claims that he can hear so well that he can hear a fly cough on a mountain 90 miles away. The bear says, well, I can beat that. I can actually smell that there is a stale hummingbird egg in a nest that's almost 700 miles away. And as they're arguing about that, a little worm pops up. And he says, 
I can beat you both because I can see farther than you can hear or than you can smell. In fact, I can see all the way around the world, he says. And when I look, what I see all the way around the world is a couple of fools bragging about how good they are and they're not accomplishing anything in life. The big brag. There are two things I think Dr. Seuss can teach us about words. One is that there is both a positive use and a negative use for the words that we use. But second is this, that we seem to have delegated these issues of speech and how we use our words to the realm of children. These are good things for children to learn, we say. These are good morals for our kids. But we as adults, we have much more important things to be concerned about, right? More important things to be concerned about than how we use our words. If you've ever read the Bible, you would know that that's not a biblical notion whatsoever. And we see that reflected, especially in the writings of the Apostle Paul. In our text that we've been following from Galatians, or from Colossians chapter 3, excuse me, um, Paul says very plainly there that people who have died with Jesus Christ have also died to things like, like slander and obscene talk and lying. And on the positive side, he says, and whatever you do, in word or in deed, and get that, he doesn't just say whatever you do in deed. He says, whatever you do in word, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Every word that you speak should be spoken in the name of Jesus Christ, to his honor and to his glory. Paul says similar things in Ephesians 4. He says, those who have died with Christ ought to live like it. And so put away falsehood, he says, and speak the truth. Put away falsehood. Put away pseudos is the, the Greek word. Falsehood, lying, deception. We have those words among us still today, right? Put away um, pseudo-intellectuality, right? Don't be a pseudo-intellectual. Don't be someone who, who acts smarter than you really are. Don't be a, a pseudo-celebrity. That's someone who's not really famous, but they know someone who knows someone who knows Brad Pitt. A pseudonym is what? It's a false name. It's an alias, right? Pseudo is everything false, deceitful. Paul says, put all that pseudo-stuff away. Put it behind you. Put it to death and speak the truth. Now, that's pretty f straightforward, I think, uh, when Paul says, speak the truth. Or he says, don't lie. There's not a lot of wiggle room there. It's fairly easy to understand. And yet, I think whenever we bring up the topic as, as adults, that is, okay, we think it's pretty straightforward for our children. But when we begin to talk about it as adults, People always seem to want to bring up the exceptions. Oh, but there are exceptions to the rule, right? One that's always brought up is the person of Rahab. You know, when the authorities of Jericho came looking for the Israelite spies, Rahab had hidden them up on the roof, and, and she told the authorities, no one here, don't know who you're looking for. Actually, she said they already left, and they went this direction. She bald-faced lied, 
And yet, Scripture seems to hold her up as an example of faith for us. And then there is Shipra and Puach that you read about in Exodus chapter 1. They were Hebrew midwives that Pharaoh ordered to kill all the male Hebrew babies, including Moses. If you remember that story, they refused to do so. Instead, they told Pharaoh that Hebrew women have such, uh, such short labor that, that they actually uh, deliver before the Hebrew midwives ever make it there. Pharaoh believed it. He fell for it. And again, they're held up as examples for us. And then there are extra-biblical people, people like Corrie ten Boom and some of her Dutch neighbors. When the Germans came knocking on the door looking for the Jews, they said, sorry, there's, there's nobody here that fits that description. And again, they're considered heroes of the faith, right? For some reason, we always grab hold of these exceptions to the rule. And so we'll, we'll just admit right up front that, yes, there are exceptions in a broken world. There are times in our sinful world when actually telling a lie might be more loving than telling the truth. But Lewis Smedes wants to make it very clear to us what we are doing in those types of cases. He says what we are doing is we are making a decision And we are deciding that some people are so evil that they lose their right to the truth. Okay? We're making a decision that some people are so evil that they lose their right to the truth. But he also says, therefore, we have to be really, really careful here. Because who gets to decide who's that evil? Who's undeserving of the truth? What if you're in business and and someone deems you unworthy of the truth just because they're your competitor? Or what if it's a spouse who deems you unworthy of the truth because of something you did 10 years ago? I mean, who gets to decide? This is a wonderful way to manipulate all the people around us, isn't it? We just say, well, you're not worthy of my truth. You're not worthy of my truth. Smead says, we cannot live with an ethic that invests every man with the right to decide when people around him are good enough to deserve truthfulness. I would agree. In other words, yes, sure, there are exceptions to the rule, but we've got to be really, really careful before we ever let go of the truth. When Paul tells us not to lie, Paul is tapping into a long line of biblical history that tells us the same thing. Tells us that words are very, very powerful. Powerful things that are not to be abused. Right? God created the world with words. Jesus came into the world as the Word. A word that must be trusted. Trusted as authentic and true. And then, and then there's the gospel itself, right? The gospel comes to us in, in words. Words to be believed. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, for instance, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now think about the power of those words. Those are the kinds of words that can actually set us free, right? I mean, if you believe those words... 
that there is no condemnation once you belong to Jesus Christ, then you are free to live a life of love, a life of joy, a life of service to your God, not worrying about condemnation. But if you do not believe those words, if you don't believe those words, you're stuck in a life with very little hope. It's a life of servanthood and slavery in terms of going through endless toil and labor, just trying to please the deity enough that there might be some reason for him to accept me. It's a miserable life, trying to earn your salvation. Words have power, friends. Not just power for good, they, they also have incredible power for evil, don't they? I mean, the serpent deceived Adam and Eve with, with words, and God's creation was vandalized to an extent that, well, it still surprises us even to this day. In the book of John, the serpent or the devil is called the father of all lies, just for that very reason. The devil is also described as the Satan the accuser. He's the prosecuting attorney who stands in court. And in the Gospel of John, if you ever read through it, it's like one big trial, right? And the devil is the accuser who accuses all of God's saints. He points his finger at us and says, don't you know what John is like? Don't you know what Peter is like? This is what they've done. This is who they really are. We get accused before God over and over and over again and in many cases, he's got a very good case, doesn't he? Remember Paul's words, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In many instances, the devil uses true words with evil intent. But the Bible also says that there is one who speaks in our defense, on our behalf. He is our advocate. He is, he is the paraclete the Holy Spirit. He's our defense attorney. And he uses words powerfully and clearly to remind both us and the Father in heaven that yes, yes, we are sinners, but we are forgiven sinners. Forgiven sinners. That Jesus has already stood in my place and he has taken my punishment on himself. And therefore, it's as if I have never sinned nor been a sinner. It's as if I have been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. Words have that kind of power. Remember the ninth commandment. It's another kind of courtroom command, right? Courtroom language. You shall not bear false witness. I mean, where does that language come from? Well, in, if you were in Israelite society and if you were accused of something, you had to go to court. You had to go out to the city gate. You didn't have some fancy defense attorney to stand in your place and say, well, he or she, they didn't do it. All you had was the judge trying to judge your character. And so there was a rule, there was a law that they need, there needed to be two witnesses whose who's testimony agreed against you. That was the only way you could be convicted. But that's why it was so important that God says, you shall not bear false testimony. Because if you lie about what someone has done or not done, it could cost them their life. Words have that kind of power. That's why Jesus 
when he talks about words, he says things like, you know what comes out of an evil heart? Things like murder and adultery. And we say, whoa, those are bad things. And then he says lies and slander. And we say, what? Those things aren't so bad. And God says, yeah, they are. You can kill someone with your words just as well as with a knife. Words have all sorts of power, don't they? And the Christian life is based on words. And so it's, it's no surprise, at least it shouldn't be a surprise to us, that, that the one who claims to be the word and who claims to be the truth, it shouldn't be any surprise to us that he would ask and command that his people, those who claim to have fellowship with him, fellowship with the one who is the truth, shouldn't be any surprise that he calls us to be truthful as well. One reason that Paul says we ought to speak the truth in Ephesians 4, he says, because we're members of one body. We are members of one body. Paul sees the church as a body with many different parts. The church is not some place that we come on Sunday if we have time, if our calendars allow it, if the singing is good. The church is a place where all of us belong to each other. We are the body of Christ, functioning as many different limbs. And when you're a body like that, it's vital that you trust one another. I recently heard Jason Dolman use uh, what I thought was a really good illustration of this. He said that in the case of leprosy, what you have is a case where different body parts begin to lie to each other. They're not speaking the truth to each other. And so you might have a hand that's, that's getting very close to the flame of a stove, perhaps even getting into the flame, but what? It's telling the brain that that flame isn't really hot. It's lying to the brain, and so the brain doesn't tell the hand to move. It just sits there until it burns. And the body begins to self-destruct. When the body lies to each other, the body begins to self-destruct. And the same thing is true for the church. When one member cannot trust another member, the body begins to fall apart. Now again, we hear things like that and we begin, I think, to reach for the exceptions. Oh, but aren't there times, we say, when it's actually better for the body if, if we don't tell the truth? Maybe if we just, you know, tell a little white lie, right? White lies, polite lies. We want to be polite. Yeah, I'd love to help you Friday night, but I'm, I'm busy. I've got something else going. No, you don't. You just don't want to help. Word inflation. Oh, that's just the best. That is so cool. It's really not that cool, right? Exaggeration. He always does this, or she always does that, or she never does that. Little white lies, and we say, well, these are actually better for the body. Um, 
example, we might say. Okay, our life group, every so often we get together for dinner. Well, Marcy, let's say, puts a bowl of soup in front of me, and it's obviously missing at least one key ingredient. And Marcy looks at me and says, how do you like my soup? What do you say? You tell her the truth, or is it a little better to just tell a little white lie and say, it's really good, really good. That's usually our first thought is, hey, it's much better just to, just to tell a little lie and let things move on, right? But then again, Smeeds points out that he says, white lies, they're kind of like painkillers. Painkillers. And painkillers, he says, they're meant for emergencies. They're meant for when you're really sick or you're in the hospital and you just had surgery. They're not there to help you cope with the daily grind. And so often, that's how we use white lies. They're just habitual ways to avoid the unpleasantries of life and of interactions with our friends. They help us avoid the unpleasant but necessary words that we should speak to each other. In other words, it would be very painful for Marcy to hear that her soup is no good, right? And it's going to be painful for me to tell her that it's really not very good. And so we just tell a little white lie and move on. We say, that's best for the body. But is it really? Let's think about that for just a moment. What if, what if later in the evening, after everyone else has gone home, Marcy's husband looks at her and says, Marcy, you know, your soup was terrible tonight. And she says, really, was it? Well, Peter told me it was really good. Um, what does that mean next time? Next time I give Marcy a compliment, do you think she's going to believe it? Or, or let's say that when Marcy or when her husband tells Marcy that her soup was actually awful, what if she chooses to believe me instead and says to her husband, well, Peter told me it was good. You're just saying that to spite me. And what if her husband often says things to spite her and they get into a big argument? But more than that, if I can't tell the truth about a bowl of soup, what does that really say about my relationship with Marcy? I mean, shouldn't I be able to communicate and, and shouldn't I have the kind of relationship where I've already communicated that as a sister in Jesus Christ, Marcy is 100% loved at a far deeper level than her ability to make soup? I mean, shouldn't she feel comfort and confident in that? Shouldn't I be able to say something, something like, Marcy, I've had better soup before, but not a better host. And, and if Marcy identifies herself so closely with her soup, if she identifies so closely with an object that hearing anything but applause about that object, if she takes that as an insult if she takes that so personally that she's devastated, then really, don't you think Marcy needs to rehear the gospel again? 
that the gospel has to yet sink in at an even deeper level? Doesn't she need to rehear that she has already been critiqued by the most important person in the universe and that Jesus Christ has awarded her a blue ribbon? And so beyond that, does anything really matter all that much? And isn't that, friends, what Christian community is really all about? Isn't it there to help us live into the gospel at such a practical level that it makes a difference in how we interact with each other, how we host our dinners? Isn't that what Christian community is about? Isn't it about saying, you know, we heard this in church. Let's try and actually live that out. We read this in the gospel. We studied it 45 minutes ago. And friends, if I tell a white lie because I don't have the time or the compassion to make sure that, that Marcy really understands the gospel at a deep level in her heart, then haven't I as a hand become worthless to the rest of the body? What is the body for? Friends, we have to ask those sorts of questions. You know, Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, he had something to say about words. He said, let your yes be yes, and your no be no. In other words, you shouldn't have to add anything more to that to make people believe you. You shouldn't have to add, you know, Cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. And you shouldn't have to preface all of your words with, you know, I'm going to be honest with you now, as if everything that came before that was less than honest. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. In other words, there should be an integrity to our words. We should all be faithful 100% to the words that we speak. There aren't special times or special places when, when we are honest um, and special circumstances where we're honest and then other times and other places where we're less than honest. But there are, aren't there? I mean, that's the world that we live in. In fact, we, we seem to make these assumptions in society today that really I'm not going to be honest with you, especially if it might mean in any way confronting you on a matter or correcting you or anything like that. I'm just going to gloss over it all. I'm not going to be honest. And then we have places, though, don't we? We have places where we do expect honesty. They're called going to see the professional. You go to the therapist's office or the pastor's office, and the door is closed. And now I can expect someone to actually be honest with me. But don't be honest with me anywhere outside of that. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Does that describe you? Always honest? How often do you press that little button that says like? How often do you send a thumbs up for reasons less than the truth? When some teenager who's, who's been baptized at this font, you know, posts uh, 
a nice picture of himself in a bar with a beer, clearly sees half-wasted. Do you send a thumbs up? Do you send a like? Or do you call him up and say, you know, I'd like to talk sometime. We need to talk sometime. Or when a 40-year-old mom starts posting seductive images of herself, do you send the thumbs up? Do you say, oh, that's cool? Or do you say, let's go out for coffee sometime? We think, I think I'd like to hear more about what's going on in your life. It's so easy to hit that little button. Like, 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 like. But it's not true. It's not truthful. And does it help the body in any way? Paul says when it comes to honesty, it's not just about you. Remember, the health of the whole body depends on it. Words are powerful. Paul says when you use words, we should use words actually to build each other up. Not in the sense of vain flattery, not in the sense of inflated language where everything is beautiful and excellent and, oh, that is so you. Paul says there are other words, or other ways to use our words that are using them as concrete forces to, to build strong, healthy Christian people. He's thinking of words like encouragement. Don't give up. Don't give up. You're a child of God. God loves you. He's thinking of words that express affection. You are, are known and you are loved. He's thinking of words that apologize. I'm sorry for what I said. I, I hurt you. He's thinking of words that defend. Just like, just like the paraclete, right? It's, it's the Holy Spirit's job to stand up and defend our reputations before the evil one. And that same Holy Spirit is in us living in us. And that's one of our roles, to use our language to stand up and to defend the defenseless, to protect the reputations that someone else is trashing, to say, no, that's not true. That's really not true. Let's not go there. In fact, I wonder sometimes when I read through this passage if that's why Paul brings up in this context, he says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Because the Holy Spirit is all about truth and defending God's people and sometimes we use our mouths to tear people down and to rip them apart and it grieves the Holy Spirit of God. Do you pass on conspiracy theories that you actually know nothing about or very little about? You can't confirm them in any way. They don't do any good for the body of Christ. I don't know what they do. We can use our language to expose lies and wrongdoing. We can use our words to be vulnerable to each other. 
I need help. I need a friend. We can use words to lighten the mood, to make people laugh, to bring them joy. We can use words to ask questions, find out more about them. We can use words to pray for others. We can use words to correct the wayward. We can use words to share the gospel. There's a scene in Acts chapter 9. Maybe you remember the scene with Tabitha. She's a woman in the church who has died. And she's in an upper room, and it must be kind of a viewing situation. And all the widows of the church are there, and they're all weeping over the loss of Tabitha. And they're showing each other all the the clothes and the blankets and all of that stuff that Tabitha has made for them. She was clearly a woman who cared about, about the widows of the church, about the little people of the church, and they're, they're grieving over her. And I think about Tabitha, and I think, you know, there are people among us who use their words like Tabitha used clothing. They use their words to clothe us where we hurt the most, where we need the most. And when you have a person like that in your community, and I think we have some here, when you lose them, it just is such a blow. And we compare stories, right? I was just a little guy, and, and they encouraged me to, to become what I am. Words can, can be used incredibly well. They're powerful One of the greatest uses of words are promises. Promises. Again, Smead says, if forgiving is the only remedy for a painful past, we talked about forgiving last week, if forgiving is the only remedy for something we've done in the past or something that's been done to us, he says, then promising is our only remedy for an uncertain future. The future is always uncertain. But a promise, promise is the remedy. That's the beauty of a marriage vow, isn't it? I mean, a marriage vow is, is really not what I, what I tend to hear nowadays, where this is my bestie, my best friend. No, a marriage vow is, is more like this. I don't know what the future is going to hold. It might hold a heart condition, It might hold a war that I get called into. It might hold heartache. It might hold health. It might hold all sorts of good things. I don't know. But I do know one thing, that whatever it holds, whatever day it comes, I will be there with you. Unless God takes me first, I will be there with you. That kind of locks down the future, doesn't it? And it says, whatever God brings, we'll be able to handle it. Baptism today reminds us of God's promise. God's promise to you, your children. God came to Abraham long ago and he said, you know, if you believe me, then I promise you this thing is going to work out. And God kept that promise, even though it led him to a cross. He kept that promise. 
And Jesus locked down our future. And he said, no matter what comes, I'll be there. I'll be there for you. That's the promise of baptism. And, and then we make promises as well, don't we, parents? Promises to our children where we say, and I promise, I promise to immerse you in the life of the church. I promise to immerse you in the gospel, in the good news that Jesus Christ died for all of your sins, that you don't have to spend your life trying to, trying to please God, get him to like you because he already loves you. And you can spend your life following Jesus and loving the unlovable and serving those who need to be served. It's a promise that we make. It's a promise in words. It's a promise that relies on the fact that Jesus, who is the word, is also the truth. And we can trust that word. We really can. Let's bow together in prayer. We're going to use this time again to pray a prayer of commitment to our God as we think specifically about the theme of speaking and using our words to be true. The worship team is going to lead us again. There'll be some words on the screens. Please use this time to meditate and to commit yourself once again to clothing ourselves with Christ. Shall be such.